Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. The poem I'm going to start off with on this podcast is called Be Careful. It was written by Frank Ash. I found it in this poetry collection, Cactus Poems, uh, and it has photographs by Ted Levine. Frank Ash is a children's book author best known for his Moonbear books, including such titles as Mooncake, Moonbear's Shadow, and Moondance. The Cactus Poems book was one of uh, three collaborations Frank did with Ted Levine, the others being Sawgrass Poems and Song of the North, and each of the books with a focus on living things in nature found in various parts of the United States, from Alaska to the Everglades. Be Careful by Frank Atched Be careful when you walk on the white sands of New Mexico, especially in the evening when the sun goes down cherry red. Be careful when the winds begin to blow and sand clouds churn and rise silky white. Be careful or you will tumble with wonder and awe into the jaws of desert light, misty blue. Be careful of the mysteries you will feel, of the secrets you will learn. Be careful. The person you were may never return. My guest today is Jasmine Warga, author of the YA novels Here We Are Now and My Heart and Other Black Holes. And in May of this year, 2019, she'll be debuting her first middle grade novel, Other Words for Home. You can find Jasmine's website at jasminewarga.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Jasmine. Thank you so much for having me. Now, as I mentioned, you've got a, a, a new novel, a middle grade novel, which is something you said um, you're writing for the first time. Can you talk a little bit of what that novel is about? Yeah. So my debut middle grade novel is called Other Words for Home, and it's about a 12-year-old girl named Jude um, who is living in a seaside town in Syria with her family. And due to the growing unrest there, kind of the revolution that's brewing on the ground, her um, mother decides that it's no longer a safe place to live. And her mother moves Jude across the Atlantic Ocean to live um, with her uncle in America. But um, Jude's brother, who's very invested in the revolution, stays behind in Syria, as well as her father, who stays behind to keep running the family shop, which is their livelihood there. And so the family's kind of fractured, living on either side of the Atlantic Ocean. And the book explores this new home um, that Judas sort of forced to make in America and the ups and downs of her, her new life um, in Cincinnati, Ohio. What gave you the idea of uh, writing this particular story? So I, um, my father's from Jordan and his best friend here in America is from Syria. And in fall of 2013, I went to dinner um, at this family friend's home and um, it was actually for me and my father and our family to meet different relatives of this family friend who had just come over from Syria because of the kind of the growing conflict there and that had now reached their hometown. And at this point in fall of 2013, I had a vague awareness of what was happening in Syria, but not like a very concrete one. And at this dinner, I learned more about the conflict. But the thing I think that struck me that I was most interested in was the interaction between 
um, my family, friends, children who had been born and raised here in America, like, like me and their cousins who had been born and raised so far in Syria and had just moved over to America and sort of this dynamic of how in lots of ways they felt like strangers, but they were family. And I started thinking about my relationship with my cousins who live across the Atlantic Ocean and Jordan and sort of that dynamic. But I didn't, I was working on another book at the time and I'm sure lots of, um, novelists can relate to this, that you have ideas all the time, but you don't necessarily start to work on them right away. So I kind of tucked it away. And then uh, flash forward to fall of 2016, um, the conflict in Syria was sort of has now been splashed across all the major Western newspapers. You know, the New York Times is covering it. The Washington Post is covering it. All of the big um, UK newspapers are covering it. Yet I felt there was sort of a deafening silence from the West in terms of the reaction to the suffering of hundreds of thousands of people. And worse yet, this kind of fear of these families who are trying to leave this horrible situation I also, at the time, I'd just become a mother and I couldn't, I, it was unfathomable to me, these people who didn't relate to that you would do anything to keep your child out of harm's way. And so that's when I really started to work on the book in earnest. But um, it took a while for it to click. I think at the beginning, I was writing too much from an analytical space and I had to kind of dig deep to find the voice of Jude, who really that voice is the heart of this novel. I think it's the, her character. And it forced me to kind of confront a lot of feelings I think I'd buried um, from adolescence about how I felt sort of othered lots of times by my um, white peers in school and kind of how I internalized feeling ashamed of um, being Arab and culturally being Muslim and all these things. And so I think that um, well, I'm not, I've never been an immigrant. There are pieces of like my experience of having to feel othered, um, in Jude. And so that all of these things came together to sort of create this book. Was, uh, because it's such a sort of, um, uh, in many ways, a, a personal book, even though you're describing events that happen, you know, that you weren't personally involved with, but uh, bringing some personal experience, was that, did it make it more challenging or did, did it actually sort of, um, inspire you and sort of give you a bit of creative energy by, um, involving yourself in that sort of way? You know, I'm, I'm just starting to talk about the book now since it's close to coming out and, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that because I, I think Jude and I'm biased, I guess, because I created her, but I think she's such a lovable character. She's definitely the protagonist of the story. And in some ways, the antagonist is her cousin, Sarah. And in lots of ways, I'm Sarah um, in the book in terms of that's her Arab American cousin who is very uncomfortable in her own skin and she's uncomfortable with where she fits and kind of feels um, in the crosshairs between these two cultures and doesn't know how to navigate that. But I think that that lent itself well because I was able to have sympathy for um, Sarah, who is the antagonist, if that makes sense. And that kind of made the book flow um, more easily. And Jude, in a way, is sort of the way she feels comfortable in herself because she's never sort of faced the types of prejudices she 
does once she arrives in America, but her pride, like in her culture and her self and her belief in her dreams is like a gift I wish I could have given to my 12 year old self. So in some ways that was a joyful writing experience, even though the book obviously is heavy at points and uh, Jude faces a lot of challenges, but I think there was joy in writing a story about like a young brown girl with hopes and dreams and joy um, as opposed to just like a, a pain narrative. Now, as I mentioned, this is your first middle grade novel. But you've, you've published uh, uh, two YA novels before. Did Was that a different experience for you or was it just a matter of adjusting? Um, and did you set out to write a middle grade novel, I guess? Um, I, this, this novel, I'd always envisioned being a middle grade novel. And I, I, the first idea of the book is like totally different. Jude's character was a boy. He was into soccer. Like the whole framework was different. But I always thought that it was going to be middle grade. I think because it's a middle school that I felt the most uncomfortable with my identity and had lots of questions about my identity. And so to me, it seemed to lend itself well to middle grade. But my editor at first was and was correct in her assessment, was telling me that the voice was really off and this was not a middle grade novel and then was asking me kind of what I wanted to do. And I was really bullheaded and I was like, no, I really want to write a middle grade novel. And she was kind of like, well, then you have to do the work. You have to convince me this is a middle grade novel. And so it took a long time to get there, um, which was a process of reading lots of contemporary middle grade novels, tweaking the voice. And I actually really think it started to flow once I decided to break the book out into verse, which I never, that never occurred to me to do. I had always planned to write it um, in prose because neither of my, both of my first two books are in prose. But so all of that, it was a journey. But the thing I always, I do like to mention though, I think some people think the challenge of writing a middle grade novel might be like, well, you can't use this complicated word or you're able to do more sophisticated things in YA. And that's not the case at all. I don't think kids are really smart. Some of the books I've read in in the middle grade genre are, are the most like challenging in terms of the questions they pose um, to their reader. It's more the perspective that a 12-year-old just has less experience, you have less life experience, and so your viewpoint is going to be a little bit different in capturing um, that authentically. So I think it's always about um, the authenticity of the narrative voice. And for a while, I was struggling uh, to find that. But I I hope that I finally I did um, in the final final product. Now, as well as writing books, you do uh, school visits. And, uh, just wondering uh, if someone went to one of your school visits, what might they expect? Yeah, well, I actually, um, since the since Other Words for Home isn't out, I have yet to do a school visit for Other Words for Home. But the school visits that I've done previously, the most common one that I do is I sort of give an introduction where I talk about how I became a writer, sort of I go through briefly like my childhood and then my education and sort of the roundabout path I took to becoming a novelist, a working novelist. Um, and then I share a little bit about the publishing industry because I think kids are always really curious about kind of the different processes that happen behind the scenes to create kind of the 
book-shaped object they see on their classroom shelf. And then I open it up to a Q&A because kids are so curious. They're kind of the best audience and they'll sort of steer you. Um, sometimes I have a group that's particularly interested in like a literary agent, which is really funny to have like a room full of fifth graders who are really interested in that part of publishing. And then I'll have Sometimes I'll have a classroom that's really curious about, you know, how, like, the craft of writing, like, how do you come up with ideas? How do you stick with the idea? And so I kind of let the classroom guide that because kids, I feel like, um, enjoy the presentations more when they're more interactive in that way. And then sometimes we break out and we talk about books that they're reading and they love because um, as my briefs, from my brief stint as an educator, I... Um, definitely believe in that cliche that sort of the teacher learns more from the students. Uh, the the book you chose as one of your uh, favorite books is uh, Bridge to Terabithia by uh, Catherine Patterson. And this was first published in 1977 by the Thomas Crowell Company and it won the Newbery in 1978. And I, I should say for those listenings, um, this is a little spoiler warning. We're, we're going to be talking about a more than likely talk about a particular aspect of the book. Uh, an event happens. It's a very important and part of the book. And so if you, I can't believe people aren't familiar with this book yet, but if you haven't read it, you might want to stop listening. If you don't like spoilers, read the book, then come back and listen to it. Cause I think it's inevitable. We're going to be talking about a, a very, very important thing that happens in the book. But anyway, with that out of the way, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, what the book is about? Yeah. So the book is about, um, two children, both of which kind of feel like outcasts in this small town. Uh, you have Jesse, who's the boy, and he's kind of more quiet, a little bit more artistic than a lot of his peers. Um, he, for example, really loves um, his music teacher, who kind of a lot of the rest of the town sees as this eccentric, bohemian, hippie type of woman, this radical. And also the other main character, her name is Leslie. And the book kind of begins when she moves in next door to Jesse. And Leslie is also a bit of a misfit. She um, wears her hair really short. She kind of dresses in a tomboyish fashion. And both of her parents, actually, funny enough, are writers. I think her mother is a novelist. And I believe her dad might be a political writer, though I'm not exactly sure I'm remembering that detail right but they're both writers and the book really sets them apart in that like they don't watch tv and they have like kind of a an intellectual imaginative household and this is the household she's being raised in which is a lot different um from her classmates and Jesse and her meet for the first time when Leslie beats him in a race and so the book begins I will. I found the beginning seemed to be so evocative, and we'll we'll talk about this later. But Je Jesse's practicing running, like this is a skill he really wants to become good at, and the their friendship is kind of forged because Leslie beats him at this race, and then he decides, well, I should be her friend because she's really good at running, which is a skill he he wants to have. And eventually, the two of them um, start playing together, and they play a lot in Leslie's backyard where they create this imaginary world, this imaginary kingdom um, that they named Terabithia, that they're the rulers of. And actually, um, I sort of have a, a quote uh, from the book that I think kind of sets this up, if that would be okay for me to read it. Oh, of course. We need a place, she said, just for us. It would be so secret that we would never tell anyone in the whole world about it. She lowered her voice almost to whisper 
It might be a whole secret country, she continued, and you and I would be the rulers of it. And yeah, and so I think this quote sort of um, shows kind of the crux of the novel here, how this is a place where that they're creating, where they can be in control. There's no teachers to tell them what to do. Their parents can't tell them what to do. They're in complete control, which right, is sort of a perfect metaphor for adolescence, this longing um, to kind of break free sort of from like the chains of the people in your life who are telling you what to do, who are controlling controlling you, yet also kind of a nostalgia and a reversion back into sort of early or childhood type games of make-believe. And so I think kind of the converging of those two elements um, is really the crux of the novel and sort of what makes it so beautiful that it kind of plays with both of those elements. And as you mentioned, you know, the main character, the uh, um, protagonist is, is, is Jesse. You know, he's going through a lot of uh, difficult times, conflicts, particularly with his family, particularly with his father. And you talk a little bit about, you've, you've mentioned some of his qualities. Can you talk a little bit, what is it about him that makes him such a, uh, a compelling protagonist, an interesting person to relate to? You know, I was thinking about this. I was reading the quote, which my copy from fourth grade, it's really beaten up, but there's a quote from the, the time the book came out that says like, this is something along the lines of this is like a perfect en- encapsulation of contemporary America. So it's funny to me to think of it as having been a contemporary novel in the sense that like when I read it, it was already historical fiction, yet it still felt like timely and groundbreaking to see a boy that's this sort of in touch um, with his emotions. He was very different from other male protagonists I was being introduced to in contemporary children's literature at the time. I know now that's sort of changed and for the better, I think, than it was uh, when I was growing up. But it, it felt revolutionary in that respect. And I think what makes him so endearing is he's really dreamy in a, in a, in a vulnerable way. Like you're, you're rooting for him immediately. There's something so, again, I'm coming to that word vulnerable, but the opening scene of the novel, he's waking up, trying to wake up before his sisters so that he can go outside and run. And he's very like gentle to the cow that he passes. There's a gentleness to him and a vulnerability to him that I think makes the hook the reader right in. Because I think, um, at the time most of us read this book, we were vulnerable in those same ways, right? We wanted to be respected by our classmates. We wanted to be really good at something. We wanted our teacher to like us. We wanted to have friends. Yet we were kind of scared of admitting those things because maybe admitting them made us not cool or that could be used against us if somebody knew we wanted to be good at that. And so I think right away it's endearing that he expresses to the reader all of these kind of inner thoughts that feel very genuine for someone his age to be having. And I think most children, readers of the book, have those same types of thoughts and desires. And of course, the other main character in the book is Leslie, um, who starts out as his antagonist, but of course uh, develops into something um, very different. Um, you talk a little bit about both what she brings to the story just as a character in herself and uh, and their relationship that she uh, develops uh, with Jesse. Yeah, so I think she brings a couple of things. One, she's not from his town. So I think in a way she represents 
like the larger world that's out there, which is something he's longing for, even if he doesn't quite realize he's longing for that, like an expansion out of this sort of small claustrophobic town where everyone for the most part, kind of thinks the same thoughts, has the same beliefs, watches the same TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. And so she represents the wider world, uh, which at first is kind of scary and I think rubs against him and sort of uh, challenges him, which is where that antagonism comes from. And then what she brings, right, is this fantastic sense of self. Like she's much more self-assured than Jesse and is sort of the one who designs the game that they play she's she is really the creator of um Terabitha. not that he's not a part of that and goes along with it but she's kind of the one who um introduces that idea and starts that game and then i think that the loss of her then we can talk about that sure. right oh, sure absolutely the, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah gets back to that right that there's a sense of like he learned something and then something was taken away so i think that she but she to me really represents the world the larger world at whole like that there's things beyond this small town that he's feeling already um sort of claustrophobic so this is really a story about a friendship um not just about a friendship but we say a friendship when it starts how it grows and develops how it has bumps in the road how it overcomes those bumps um what do you think kids might take away from this in regards to thinking about their own friendships that they have in their lives yeah you know i was thinking about how this is one of the first books that I remember reading on my own that made me ball. Charlotte's Web was read aloud to me. And so I think, and like Velveteen Rabbit was read aloud to me. So I think a lot of those first heartbreaker books I read were read aloud to me. This is the first book I remember having read myself and crying. And it's interesting that you asked what it teaches you about friendship, because looking back, obviously it teaches you a lot about that a great friend is, can be someone who challenges you, who pushes you out of the box, not necessarily somebody who says yes to everything. And I think at that age, we kind of crave acceptance so much that the first thing we might think we want in a friend is someone who's going to just like agree with everything or be easy. And really it's Leslie Saul the better version of Jesse that he could be in a sense. Like she saw him as he could be kind of as he was, but didn't want other people to know that he was. And so that's a beautiful thing. I don't know if I processed that in its entirety when I read the book, obviously, but looking back on it now, I think it it did teach me about kind of how your friends can help you grow as friendship grows. I think that's such a huge part of the book is how they both, help each other um, to develop and grow. Along with friendship, this is also a story about the, the the importance and value of imagination. And you see it not just in the creation of uh, Terabithia, but also in the, the kind of art uh, Jesse wants to create. And what do you think this story has to tell us about why imagination, it's not just a diversion, but it's just a really important part of life. Yeah, you know, in some ways, I think the imagination here is a stand-in for hope. And hope and imagination oftentimes could be synonyms, that we imagine a better world, that we can imagine a better reality for ourselves. You know, there's tons of cliches built upon that, right? That if you can imagine it, you can be it. If All those those types of things. And I think the book sort of is an embodiment of that, that they 
um, are creating their own world. They're kind of masters of their own destiny. And Terabith as a way to, to uh, practice that, to try that out, that they are kind of uh, early on the wave that we have now where you would call that manifesting kind of your destiny or that's more buzzy now. But sort of that idea of um, they're imagining a better world for themselves. And I think, too, I... I think at the time I may have misinterpreted the book that I thought it was about growing up and that growing up me- meant you had to leave make be- make believe things behind. And now reflecting on it as an adult, I don't think that's what the book was saying at all. I think that I, I even though Jesse in the end kind of gives his sister Terabitha, I don't think it means that he's never going to have another make believe kingdom or that he's never going to have another imaginative experience. But at the time when I read it, I think. I had seen that as kind of a metaphor for growing up that you have to leave imaginary things behind. And now maybe I don't want to think that now as an adult of the book, but I have a different feeling about that now. Uh, there are a couple interesting aspects of this novel, I think, reading as an adult. One is, I mean, you touched upon this a, a bit earlier and how it deals with sort of gender expectations for boys and girls and how uh, both of the characters kind of uh, push against them and are sort of have this push and pull of, of expectations of what they how they want to see themselves. And sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. And I know you talked about this a little bit about how it sort of, uh, you know, um, and especially for a, a novel from 1977, it was uh, um, pushing against these idea of, you know, um, what does it really mean to be a boy or girl? And are we, can we go beyond those sort of, ideas of what it has to be. I think that if you went into a book like this, your initial like thought would be that the girl would be sort of the wimpier one, the one who was like afraid of the dirt, who didn't want to, you know, kind of wasn't going to have the same like prowess in the outdoor activities. And Leslie's kind of the leader and it's Jesse who's much more fearful and anxious and, worried about things um, in terms of like outdoor play and all of those types of things. And as a little girl, that was really, really empowering for me to see Leslie sort of be the leader, to be the one who was much more comfortable kind of jumping over logs and et cetera. And I think too, there's a lot of discussion today in children's books about um, novels being really powerful tools, both as windows and as mirrors. And I think as silly as it might sound, this book was a really powerful window for me in terms of my male classmates that it showed me a boy who was like really deep in his feelings and was like artistic and dreamy and all of these things that I think I'd already internalized by fourth grade to not think of as being things that boys were or boys could be or boys should be. And so I think that was really great because a lot of the other um, male heroes at the time that were in the books we were reading were not at all like Jesse. That was sort of the first boy who seemed like he wanted to play make-believe in. And again, it's funny because you can look back and you can, I don't know how much correlation this is, but I remember it's in fourth grade that I decided I wanted to write my own like play. And I remember approaching a male classmate who lived down the street from my grandparents' house and asking him uh, to participate with me. And this was shortly after we finished Bridge to Terabitha. And again, it's like, I never made this connection in my head that I was trying to like do something similar to the book or replay in the book. But I do wonder 
like if I would have thought to even think that this boy could be interested in, in this kind of um, play if, if I hadn't uh, read this book. So it, I do think uh, as much as I was being a little bit negative before about the kind of, I, I guess I, I bristle now, which is, again, I have the benefit of, you know, being t- taught and having r- consumed a lot of like current scholarship about gender roles. But I bristle now a little bit at this idea that like masculine traits are, you know, superior to feminine traits. And I think that's an interesting conversation to have. But that said, I don't think you can can downplay um, probably how groundbreaking this book was in the way that it handled gender roles. And also, like I said before, I think we have um, a much improved vocabulary now to, to handle those types of issues. And I wonder if Leslie would have been coded even more uh, so as opposed to being like a tomboyish girl, if she would have been more of like a gender fluid character if she was written in 2018. Now, one of the other uh, interesting aspects of this book, I expect particularly when I was uh, reading it as an adult, was uh, how it deals with the um, the idea of grief. And we sort of touched on it a little bit, but basically, you know, uh, at, at a, I think about two-thirds in the novel, um, the character of Leslie dies through an unfortunate accident, and, and the rest of the novel deals with sort of the the repercussions of that. And I just thought it was, what I think was interesting isn't just that a sad event happens and he feels sad, but it's more complicated um, and layered in how he goes through his very sort of unique process of dealing with uh, grief. Yeah. I mean, I think the hardest thing for me about this book and something that I still can't quite tease out is how heartbreaking it is, is how responsible Jesse feels, even though you know that he's not. But as the reader, you kind of also feel that he is. As a kid, like you keep thinking, like, why did you go? Why did you go with the music teacher? Why weren't you there? Like, maybe something would have been different. And what's so, I think, powerful about that is it's so real. And that's also the process a lot of us have when we lose a loved one that we, you know, the book in a way has a, strand right of magical thinking of them building this imaginary kingdom together yet there's also the strand of magical thinking that comes through grief of thinking that you could have changed an outcome or you could have done something different um and i think that's really artful how she wove those two different things together and you kind of engage in that magical thinking along with him and that's why i think the grief in the book feels so intense that for a little bit, you feel muddled in that, that you, you want things to be different. You, um, want him to not have gone with the music teacher. Uh, it's to the Smithsonian. I think, I believe they do. And at the time you're so excited for him because he loves this music teacher. He kind of has a almost cute adolescent crush on her. And then you feel the betrayal of Leslie even more so. Um, and I think, you know, we all experience that, um, as hopefully not, at the age that he does in the book, which is what's so heartbreaking. But later on, you know, when you lose someone you love, you always think about kind of what was that last conversation I had with them? Did I say the things that I wanted to say? You know, it's very realistic, I think, in the fact that nobody's prepared um, when that kind of tragedy hits and how you're going to kind of second guess all of your actions. So I think that it's incredibly kind of dark and and unresolved in, in which is what I think makes the grief feels so real and authentic in the book. 
Now, I know you had a chance uh, earlier in uh, when we were talking, you shared a little bit of the novel. I was wondering, were there any other passages from the book that you'd like to share? Yeah, let me, speaking of the grief, if I can read one um, here that I think sort of speaks to that. So it said, here's the quote, she had tricked him. She had made him leave his old self behind and come into her world. And then before he was really at home in it, but too late to go back, she had left him stranded there like an astronaut wandering about on the moon alone. And I think that's such a beautiful metaphor that she uses there and in a way how a lot of us feel when when we're grieving that you're left on kind of this desolate like rock floating in the middle of space alone um and i i think that speaks you know to the beautiful writing that's in the book and also just like how well, Catherine Patterson works with metaphor. Like the whole book is carefully stacked metaphor on metaphor on metaphor. We're working with like really big metaphors and then she'll put in tiny ones to to build it out from there. But um, she's really a master, I think, at the metaphor. Even the title of the book, uh, Bridge to Terabithia, is a metaphor for or for what? I'm not sure, but. Uh... Yeah, no, and that's the thing. I think. I think, like I said before, and I know I'm kind of hammering this point, but I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of the way, the pressure I feel in my own novels to resolve everything. And I think Sherbeth is such a complex book and it doesn't resolve everything because it doesn't completely absolve Jesse either, you know, of the guilt that he feels. We never get this sense. I mean, nobody's really blaming him, but, you know, her parents move away. Like, there's not... uh, it's not tied up with a neat bow. His grief isn't, which is so true because grief is forever, right? In the sense that your love for the person you lost is forever. And those are linked together. And I think the book stares that right um, in the face. It, It doesn't flinch. It doesn't blink. And that's incredibly powerful. And I think there's a lot of pressure, especially in contemporary novels, kind of to tie things with a bow. And this book resists that impulse. And I think that's kind of why it's maybe had the staying power that it has, that it's unique in that sense. I think so. Uh, Well, Jasmine, uh, thank you so much for choosing this book. It gave me a chance to reread it uh, after a few years. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love uh, getting to chat about books that I love. So thank you. (laughs) You can find Jasmine's website at jasminewarga.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.